Welcome to the CSLP Podcast, where we're helping to educate, inform, and assist financial professionals and student loan borrowers to make smarter repayment decisions. So uh, thanks for joining us, all you peeps out there. It's uh, Heather and Jance, and uh, we are talking. We're talking the redonkulousness of student loans again today, um, and specifically, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, this uh, study by the GAO about uh, fraud that's all over the news and in, in the student loan system. And we're going to talk. And that's the Government Accountability Office, is that right? Yes, the Accountability Office of Student Loans, where they're finding accountability is lacking. And we'll talk about how it may be lacking across the board, not just uh, with regards to student loan borrowers, but also uh, how about the Department of Education upholding their end of it as well. Yeah, right. So the Government so, Accountability Office dropped this report um, here in July 2019 that saying the Department of Education needs to do more to verify student loan borrowers' information, documentation of their income and family size for their income-driven repayment plans. And the thing that rubs me wrong, and I know there's a lot that rubs you wrong about this that I want to hear, but my first reaction, my knee-jerk reaction is like, okay, can we start with the tens of thousands of dollars that borrowers lose in the system because of errors on the part of student loan servicing companies? And other, you know, barriers that are built in the system to make sure that people pay more than they might otherwise. Uh, Yeah, without a doubt. We both have had numerous clients where they have had errors in the system, miscalculations of payments, servicers putting them on forbearance when they didn't need to or shouldn't have. And this has caused additional payments, interest to accrue to borrowers. This isn't a, a one-way street of, of errors or fraud fraud in the system, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think we um, we could talk so, Oh, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. I'm all excited. I told you I was all I'm all riled up about this. Like I'm not this is not sitting well with me. Like I recognize that it's important for the government to monitor its programs and, you know, not allow people to defraud the system and all that. Like I have I have no problem with accountability, documentation, and the like. But when you only see that presented about how some borrowers seem to be playing fast and loose with the rules, that, and you don't also say which, what the GAO has said, in fact, in other reports, which is that, hey, the, the government is doing a really, really poor job administering these programs. And the, and to, to me, the reason many of the borrowers who ha- who submit documentation of income of zero, say, are are doing it because the system is um, bizarre in the in the way it asks people for their income, and we should probably talk about that. Right, and, and let's let's say in this in this whole damning report, there was one line where um, it does say that they acknowledge that what they found doesn't prove fraud, but they are saying that uh, there is a financial incentive to commit fraud for lowered payments. And of course, that makes sense. There's 
that that's basically the the definition of fraud who commits fraud without a financial incentive behind it right just to commit fraud people don't do that um so so right fraud is is committed for financial gains i think that's a great point gents which is also sort of what i'm saying with regard to the system is structured to say to student loan borrowers document your income this way or that way depending on your subjective interpretation of the word reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, the government asks people, they say, so, hey, do, you know, are you making nothing? Do you have documents that say you don't make any money? And lots of people do because they've recently started earning money, for example, but their tax returns are from the previous year. And that's what the loan servicers want from people. And the whole system is designed to funnel people into, you know, providing that documentation, which to me would account for at least some of this issue. Yeah, and specifically in in the articles that were released and and the nuggets that were pulled out of the GA study was they found that there were a number of individuals who were certifying that they had no income, but they had reason to believe that in that year they made excess of $100,000. Well, I, I think that Certainly within the system, there lies the ability for borrowers to fraudulently report income. There are severe punishments for doing so, but just that uh, indication or, or, or sample that they're talking about, I can think of an example off the top of my head right away why that would be the case. So let's say you are a, uh, a professional, you're uh, an attorney, you're a doctor, you're a dentist, um, and actually, I am an attorney, uh, Jan, right. so we don't have to imagine that. <laughs> so let's say, Heather Jarvis, you're an attorney and you're working at a firm and you're making over $100,000 <laughs> a year and you have a child and you oh. live in the state of California and you go out on state disability when you're having your child. It would be true that at that point in time, you have no federal taxable income because California's state disability income is not subject to federal taxes. So that individual could yep. actually be telling the truth that they have no taxable income in a year that they made $100,000. Um, so so that statistic in and by itself doesn't actually prove that someone was falsifying those documents. No, not at all. No, I think that's an excellent point. And, and there, there's also the fact when regard to this zero income issue that the GAO found. So there's the example you gave. And there's, there's also the fact that since the, um, loan servicers change the forms regularly for applying for income driven plans, when the new plans are introduced, people have responded historically to different questions about their um, income. In fact, so I'm old as dirt, as you know, and so I have all this student loan history. And when they first started doing these income-driven plans, you used to be required to submit alternative documentation of income if you were first entering repayment, because they knew that folks graduating from school don't work as much as the previous year as a student as they likely will the year after they graduate. At least that's the plan. That's how school's supposed to work. So they always said, hey, don't don't give us last year's tax return. Give us a pay stub so we can see what you're making now, right? But now, as you know, what they do is they say to people, hey, 
uh, give us your tax return unless you raise your hand and say, no, actually, let me give you a pay stub. And if you give them a pay stub, then they overestimate your income. They assume a, a gross income and they assume that you are employed for the full 12 months of the calendar year rather than perhaps you started working at the end of the year. And so it's these numbers are are really only a part of the story. Right. And there's this huge uh, gray area and different definitions of income, different definitions of family size within the student loan world than what you see in traditional world, uh, you know, tax planning world or financial advising world. And it creates, as, as we talk about in the, in the CSLP course material, it creates some ambiguity as to what is actually somebody's income. Um, so in some cases, again, if we look at tax world and we look at, hey, this person may have $100,000 as adjusted gross income, but they filed separately from their spouse, it could be that, that they have no income at all and their spouse has a $200,000 a year income and due to community property allocations, the adjusted gross income doesn't jive with, hey, I have zero income, which which both are true, but the borrower shouldn't be, uh, as, as you always say, shouldn't be required to uh, document income in a way that's most detrimental to them and have the payment calculated in the way that's most detrimental to them, when indeed, they, in that example, they're not working. Right, exactly. And, and, and so... The, the, the point I always make that you're referring to here, too, is that there's a lot that is open to interpretation about the laws that determine uh, what options student loan borrowers have. I mean, from interpreting the language of the statutes to the regulations, the guidance from the department, or what the only thing that borrowers interact with is the forms and the electronic application processes. And unfortunately, they're loan so, servicers. Right? Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> So like you're filling out an application for an income-driven repayment plan. And as the student loan borrower, you get a form that has, you know, instructions and what you're supposed to do in response to those instructions is not all that clear. Um, It gives you these kind of like different options and, you know, we can, we've, we can and should go through, we do in our, uh, course and and otherwise to to show, you know, what is, what are these um, documentation requirements asking for? What can you produce within the letter of the law? What should you produce? What, what would be false and prohibited? Um, And I'm sure some people are cheating. I'm not saying nobody's cheating, Uh, but just looking to see like, oh, look, there's 40, you know, 40,000 people or almost 50,000 people in income-driven plans who have family sizes of nine or more, they say. And that's atypical for IDR plans. Right. What? I think think they said one person even claimed they had 69 people in their family size. But, you know, I look at the... No, I think that two people claimed that they had 93 people in their family size. 93. And, you know, I can... I can see how this would go, right? You're on the electronic form filling out your family size. And you're like, I wonder if it'll accept three digits or if it's limited to, you know, two digits. That's probably the maximum input. I bet you, I bet you, I bet you it is. Right. Now, no, 
to be fair, things like that, I think the servicer sh- should, and I do believe they have the ability to further question that information, right? So if they get an IDR form that says, hey, we have 93 people living in our household, like unless these are one of the people who are living in one of the refugee centers on the border, that's probably not entirely true, and they should probably ask for some additional information or question that further with the borrower. Absolutely. And I thought that was some of the more important information in the GAO report as well, that they did point out weaknesses in the Department of Education's process. So they say, you know, the Department of Education doesn't really have much to check against. They don't have access to federal sources of data to verify whether someone has zero income. Um, and so they're they're many things that they could do to, you know, flag data that seems incorrect to establish whether there's fraud or error. Uh, and that's what should happen. They should have much more sophisticated practices so they can analyze what's going on. But um, they absolutely don't do that. And if they did do a full analysis, what they'd find is all sorts of ways that borrowers are getting ripped off. <laughs> exactly. I mean, borrowers are getting ripped off way more than the government is getting ripped off. Right, right, right. You know, like that, that is the truth. Yeah. yeah. And That's what's going on. Yeah. Here. And I, you know, you, you, some of the challenges too are, is um, they're the way these income driven repayment plans are work and structured. Um, there's really no automatic way to pull this data somewhere else without relying upon somewhat of self-certification. So Heather, as you know, when people are talking and as we're specifically talking about family size here, the definition that the Department of Education has created through the statutes and regulations with regards to who is included in a borrower's family size is not the same as what is considered dependent for tax returns. So certainly everyone that would be considered a dependent likely is going to be included in the the family size for a borrower, but there may be additional people, but there's no other formal way to document that you have an aunt or an uncle or a brother, sister's cousin living with you that you're providing for that may not be claimed as a dependent. So it's, it's, I, I wonder and question how much they really think that they could create a system to put better checks and balances on some sorts. I mean, certainly 96 is egregious, but eight, I don't, it's possible. It's 93, Jance. Let's, let's get this straight. 93 members of the family. No, <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And you know, what's interesting is when they were developing the regulations for income-driven repayment, at they, there's a negotiated rulemaking process. And the Department of Education brings, you know, a version of their, of their plan for how to implement the statute, which is the law that Congress passed that said, hey, have income-driven repayment and have it work like this. And so they specifically consider and weigh the trade-offs between having ease of administration, which is very easy to just have a borrower state a figure that represents their family size and use that figure. Um, That's simple. That no one spends any time doing anything, which saves the government money. Um, Or you could develop a different kind of definition and verification process that was much more rigorous. You know, I mean, if 
to, to, to show how ridiculous it could get, you know, you could require people to send, you know, DNA samples of every <laughs> person that they're claiming and make sure they're actually family, you right. know, or show the adoption certificates or whatever. Like, I mean, they could picture, if they wanted picture, to. Pictures of, pictures of your laundry it. to show you're doing laundry for that many people. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, they, I mean, they can ask you to do whatever they want within, you know, to a certain extent. And we've got examples of when they ask for stuff they shouldn't be asking for, in my opinion. But they're, they decided that it wasn't worth trying to to spend money enforcing something about family size because it has a, a relatively small effect over the course of the big numbers that people are talking about. At least that was the thinking. So if they want to change the rules, they're their rules, I guess is what I'm saying. It's like, don't complain when borrowers are following the procedure that you invented. Right. And and that's why the, the GAO should say, hey, Ed, you're doing this in a stupid way. But it's not that, oh, borrowers are defrauding the system. It's that the system is stupid. Right. But let's, let's back. Some borrowers probably are defrauding the system in some fashion or another. I know. Right. I know there are. Right. Right. But, but that, but Welfare it's... queens. But this is what I'm saying is like it's that the, the general theme is like, hey, this uh, the problem is borrower fraud. And I think that that is misleading in that I think it's a it's it's not a big problem. Well, let's let's back up a little bit and talk about the um, financial benefit or the economic benefit someone could get from misrepresenting their income, stating they're making no income when they are working, or misrepresenting their family size. Um, while that could create an artificially low payment for them, um, they are indeed accumulating interest that's being unpaid. And if they did, they would have to continue to defraud the government for an extended period of time before they would actually receive that economic benefit of discharge debt. I mean, we're talking 20, 25 years of fraudulent behavior before they would actually reap that benefit. If they, let's say we're talking about someone that was earning $100,000 or more, and for a year, they filled out the form wrong, incidentally, or they you know, went out on disability, as I discussed, or, uh, or created some sort of fraud, and then the next year went back to documenting their income as they properly should, they're really doing harm to themselves because they're accumulating additional interest that's their responsibility. That's such a great point. I hadn't even thought of that yet, but that's fantastic. And, Thank and you. And then what flows Thank- from that... Yeah, I mean, yes, everybody, yeah, let's yeah. hear it for Jan's yeah, Heather, every once, while, Jan's once in a while, she says he comes up with a good idea. Every once in a while. Hey, good, good, good job, Jan's. <laughs> and what and what flows what flows from what you just said, so borrowers pay more over time when they pay less per month, right? So Jan's just showed us why if a borrower is under-reporting their income, they reduce their monthly payments. Uh, but that means that their principal balance remains the same and interest continues to accrue over time. So over time, they owe more to the government than they would have if they had paid more sooner on the loan. So then you also have the fact that the government has these extraordinary collection authorities and the full debt will be uh, repaid Uh, If the borrower is busted for fraud or default or anything else during that 25 year period, like you'd have to be successfully defrauding the government annually 
for 25 years in order to really benefit right. from this scheme. And, and, let's... and in fact, in most cases, the government will just end up collecting additional money from those people who, who you know, were shooting themselves in the foot by trying to take advantage uh, unfairly. Right. right. They're, they're, if they end up paying their loans off uh, within that period of time because their income increased and they don't feel the need to defraud the government for an extended period of time, um, they... <laughs> They're going to end up paying more. Also, as, as you and I both know, under current tax code, the forgiven debt is considered ordinary income, and, and they're creating a larger and larger tax bill for themselves in the future when that debt is exi- eventually discharged and the 1099C is in, issued. And finally, yep. And then, fi- well, fi- oh, well oh, finally, oh, these oh, individuals oh, have to be comfortable with the fact that there's that that defrauding the student loan the government and ed is not going to get caught and cause them the severe penalties that are there which could mean five years imprisonment per each time they defrauded the government yeah yes yeah and uh yeah that's that's a big stick that the government carries that's for sure and so if they owe the tax as you pointed uh, pointed out on the forgiveness, then now they, instead of having the Department of Ed as their creditor, they have the Department of Treasury as their creditor and the IRS. And again, will they will will pursue borrowers and taxpayers to the grave. So the government will take, can if they want to, take their Social Security, everything else. I mean, nobody's going to get away with, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to imagine. There certainly isn't any way to get rich quick you know, doing fraud on your student loans. No, not at all. And and like, if you think about it, they will likely owe as much in tax as they would have in their student debt if they accumulated that interest for a full 25-year period of time. And if they truly were defrauding the government, they likely are not going to be insolvent, so they're going to have to carry those taxes, to pay those taxes. Plus, I mean, those people are probably committing fraud in other aspects of their lives and aren't going to be uh, free individuals for that long anyway. Right. You know, you know, it would be an interesting conversation and exercise for us, Chance, is what if we, a couple of student loan experts, what if we tried to create the perfect fraud scheme for student loans? Like, so we know the rules, right, of the student loan system. So let's say we're criminals, like this is like Ocean's 27 uh-huh. or whatever we're right. on now, right? So we're, are, we're plotting this. We're like, okay, how can we use the student loan system to steal money from the government? Um, my, you know, just off the top of my head, because I haven't actually planned any crimes before. So, but just off the top if, of my if head. If Ed is listening, this is hypothetical. Could, if, if, yeah, right, yeah, totally like, hypothetical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hypothetical. Um, this is, we're joking. Right. This is not real. We're just talking. So so you borrow as much as they'll let you, right? I guess to begin with. And then you try to make off with it all. So you could get, if you, if you went to four years of undergraduate school, you could get like 30 grand, 35 grand out of the federal government, yeah. right? And then it, it, immediately after graduation, you fake your own death and you have fake documents, new social security number, you know, the whole thing. So that then that's basically the only way that they could never find you or collect. 
And so that's, I would think, the most you could steal. Right, and and, and keep in mind from the system. Yeah, and of the thirty-five grand that you borrowed, you maybe got six in your pocket for living expenses, while the rest went directly to the college for living for tuition and room and board, everything. Right. At, Good and point. then Good you point. got you and, got well, that. If you were a super mask, well, you got that sweet education, wait, wait, right? Wait, well, one more thing, okay. Dan. Wait, wait. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. I want, I want to be oh, real masterminds okay. here. I want to see how you know we're we're perfect fraudsters. You could have stolen a little more from the uh, school if you had like withdrawn, you know, from oh. gotten a refund, right? Yeah, yeah, of some student loan money that you weren't entitled to. But that's not going to be very much either, right? And, right. and and then in your master plan, Heather, you fake your own death, so you got like that six yeah. grand. Um, in your pocket, and then you had to spend some of that on all the new Social Security documents and everything to fake your own death. Uh, and then you now right. start your new career without the education that you just got from the federal student loans because you left that identity behind. So you can then right. start over again and start borrowing again? You know what you'd have to do? If you really, really wanted to defraud the student loan system, you'd have to create a fake university. Yeah. Because you're not going to get any federal student loans unless you're a student at a university. Yeah. And so the criminals, like if you, if your plan is to like milk the feds for student loan fraud, you'd have to like get admitted Ooh. to a program and, and, and apply for the loans and such. So you'd have to have a fake university. Wait a minute. That, and that, yeah, wait a minute. I got an idea. So what you should do is set up um, a fake for private uh, university convince a whole bunch of people to enroll where they take out the student loans and pay that money to you. You give them shitty education. You mislead them as to the employment opportunities. Mm-hmm. And then you close the doors while they're in school and you run up with the money. <laughs> I, is that how you do it? Because I'm pretty sure that playbook has been played out before. <laughs> oh my God, you're so right. Why are we even yeah, having this conversation? I should just look to the private market if I want to see the best way to milk the most money out of this. Yeah, it's not, it's not for the borrowers. It's for those Capitalism. schools. It's for the schools that close. That's, that's who milks the money out of the student loan system. <laughs> and that's why I'm so annoyed with this report that's like, hey, there are some borrowers that are inflating their family size. There's 40,000 individuals. How many people... Oh, student loans chance. 40 million. 40 million. Yeah. And there's 40,000 people who are like, I have a really big family. Right. And the government's like, you probably there's don't. One tenth, Your family's yeah. probably small. One tenth of 1% maybe might have some abnormalities. And really of those, like two, you could say the ones with 93 people in their family says probably are, are way outlier. They're, they're committing fraud, right? But those two... Or it's some weird tech issue, you know, like I'm saying, or some stupid joke, you know, where some idiot is like, oh, let me see what happens if I put this in. Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of people are going to have a $0 payment even if they have a family size of one. Well, Right, and and what's what's concerning to me is, and, and we've talked about this in other aspects because we have... Between you and I, we've identified some other areas where fraud is occurring in the system. We have reported this to Department of Treasury. We've reported it to various federal oh, bureaus. We have, we have been active in identifying some areas of fraud and reporting it, to which nobody has done anything, right? So, so it's not as if we haven't right. seen it and reported it, but it, it, you know, it doesn't change. But, but what we've always said when we've seen this is 
Um, these areas where a very small number of people are taking advantage of, of the rules and the system um, leads to shit like this where then it gets glorified and who gets punished are the 99.9% of the people that are actually following the rules as should be get punished because of the, the few bad actors in the space. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and I look at, you know, that you're preaching to the choir. reading those articles and hearing the quotes from from um, your 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 favorite uh, person in, in the Department of Education, Miss Betsy. Um, <laughs> she she said, you know, this is the problem that has been created by other administrations, but we're going to fix it. Um, and, and I kind of go back to because we've had some conversations about some other policymakers and, and some ideas of bills that have been brought up in Congress, like. Uh, reply requiring employers to withdraw income from people's paychecks that have student loans and send it to the government, uh, and just how how mm-hmm. those solutions don't work. Like they're just problems with privacy. Not everybody works for a large employer. What employers could handle the added administration costs of doing that? Um, and there are areas again where you know it's difficult. Like the, the loan servicers and the way the system's set up now, if they want you to fit in a certain box, be employed with a company, have a paycheck that's formatted in a certain way. But if you're self-employed, you own your own business, you work at multiple companies, you have, you, you're on an hourly wage that varies, all of these things don't really fit well in their box for calculating the payments. And it leads to a lot of discretion. It leads to a lot of um, challenges from an administration standpoint. And, and that could be why the servicers part of the reason why the servicers are so overwhelmed and suck at their job. Yeah, right, right, right. No, I think that's a good point. I mean, I, as much as I criticize servicers, and you know I do that from the moment I wake up until the moment I rest every day of my life, and I will until the, you know, the day I die. Uh, But it's, it's a completely unwieldy system, and there's different rules for different people, and they're supposed to, you know, administer something cost-effective and streamlined and fluid. Like, with this mess, like, I don't know how to do that. I wouldn't be able to do it. I mean, I'm sure you'd have to spend more money, you know, which is what nobody wants to do. But I'm sure you'd have to spend more money to do a better job. And speaking of the current administration... Um, just to sort of wrap up some of what we've been talking about. The, one of the first things the Department of Education did, uh, one of the very first things they did with regard to student loans was to back off of um, guidance from the previous Obama administration uh, about um, raising the standards of student loan servicing and evaluating the um, effectiveness of the loan servicing companies uh, from the perspective of the borrower, in addition to from the perspective of the government's bottom line. So one of the very first things this, this administration did was come in and say, no, 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 don't, we're not doing that. We're, we're not going to make sure, we're not going to do anything about trying to make student loan servicing better. In fact, we're trying to figure out ways to make sure borrowers are um, you know, not able to defend themselves when they are defrauded by their schools. Oh, right. Uh, as you right. Out. I mean, what was the what was the study that was done on the Borrower Defense uh, Act and how they had to create a way for borrowers to uh, apply for their loans to be forgiven if they were defrauded by the school that they were going to, which goes back to your uh, get rich uh, off the federal government student loan scheme. Um, but 
I, I believe the result, that the, the study that came out earlier this year is that nobody had been granted forgiveness for that. Right, right. Exactly. And then we've been talking so much about the, you know, disaster that is the administration of public service loan forgiveness, too. And the, you know, can you, the, the money out of people's pockets, real people every day who are, you know, making payments for longer than they should have to because of problems in the system, that's affecting, you know, people's lives. And so, you know, that's of vital importance. And this administration has demonstrated every inclination to protect private profit interests and not um, student loan borrowers or, you know, the families that depend on loans to access education. Yeah. So, you know. It's a problem. I mean, the, 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 as you said, the inefficiencies in the system and how student loan servicers are doing their job um, is causing, I would say, loss on both sides, right? Both sides, the federal government, as, as some people are committing fraud along the way, and certainly the borrowers that are not getting uh, what is legally obligated to them in the terms of forgiveness or public service loan forgiveness, miscalculations of payments, um, you know, being put into forbearances and capitalizing interest and these sort of things. Uh, it's happening on both sides, but the, the net effect is significantly more detrimental to this teacher that's supposed to have their, her loans or his loans forgiven after 10 years making $60,000 a year versus the federal government that has maybe a hundredth of a percent of the total portfolio that potentially could have created fraud. Yep. Yep. Well put. But And along those lines, I mean, we talked about this recently, too, with regards to the servicers, the amount of work that they have to, because it's not an easy job administering this. I don't envy them having to administer the income-driven repayment plans and the rules because borrowers don't really know it very well. The servicers make mistakes. Documentation, as we've already talked, can be sporadic at best and not uniform all the time. Um, but but I've noticed this here recently where some of the servicers are are so bogged down with trying to administer these income-driven repayment plans that they can't process the paperwork in a timely manner. And we're having borrowers that are doing their quote-unquote annual recertification, turning their documents in on time, and they, they're they not getting the paperwork processed in time for their next year's payment, which has a whole nother slew of issues tied to it. And now we're talking about, hey, let's add more to that process for the servicers to verify stuff. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, they're already overwhelmed with the level of detail that they are responsible for processing and in the frequency of it. And and I think, you know, to to the credit of the GAO, you know, I think really what to me I take away from this report more than what the media is reporting. Like, I, I don't mean to say that that's the it's the GAO study itself. It's more the sort of mainstream media's shorthand reporting of the report, which is like, oh, borrower fraud. And really what the report says is, hey, look at this weird borrower data where people say they have 93 members in their family and they say they have no income at all when it looks like they probably do. Um, Where's your your system, Department of Education, for flagging these things and investigating them and, you know, 
documenting what's real and uncovering fraud. And and that's what the Government Accountability Office is supposed to do, is hold the government accountable for running government programs. And they're saying, hey, Department of Ed, you suck. Yeah, well, Which they've, they've said many right. times in very specific ways. Newsflash. Um, and... Yeah, they're saying you suck at everything and you suck at detecting the small amount of fraud, in my view, that it looks like may exist in the income-driven repayment system. Yeah, and you know, you look at other government agencies, you look at the Department of Treasury and the IRS, and and they have processes in place that simplify their audit process, right? Um, When the IRS receives a tax return, they run these tax returns through a computerized system that compares it to other like taxpayers to, to, to see if there are any abnormalities that are outside of the norm, like, you know, 93 people in your family. And those individuals run a much higher audit risk than the individuals that are within the normal bell curve standard deviation of everybody else that's like them. Um, so th- there certainly yeah. could be processes that are similar to that within the ed. Um, and they could run that sort of on a general scale and say things like, as they identified in this GAO study, hey, if someone says they have more nine or more than people in their family size, this is abnormal and it probably should raise some eyebrows and, and you should ask some additional questions about this, right? Specifically, if last year was two and this year is nine, like how did they just gain seven people in their family size from year to year? Um, but with that being said, I don't, what would you call that if someone gave birth to seven babies all at once? Uh, 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 ex- I think it wouldn't it be sex tuplets or is that six? I don't know. I, I would call it I'm picking up uh, my life moving to Alaska and homesteading by myself is what I would call it. I'm out. <laughs> by yourself without yeah, the oh, sex yeah, tuplets? Yeah, I'm gone. <laughs> like I'm, I'm growing a beard. I'm, I'm homesteading and, and this is an address, a P.O. box you might be able to reach me at. <laughs> that's only six oh. i don't know what you call it when you have yeah, seven scary how do i look that up? how do how do you google I that i don't know i have no idea um but <laughs> but 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 what i say <laughs> what seven babies called that's what people say okay wait hold on it's septuplets. 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 Okay. so sex sex tuplets is six and sept like september is seven Yikes. okay it's it's Sorry. a tv show waiting to happen is what it is right uh, but so, but what what I what I'm concerned about is is one um, when when the Department of Education says, well, we're going to look into this and, and we're going to cut this ability out to do this to to have um, this fraud in the system, and we've had a number of legislative bills that some have even been passed through one side of Congress and have said, uh, you know, we're going to require tighter documentation or different types of documentation of income for these plans. Uh, I wonder, I'm concerned, one, of, of how they would do that. Two, I'm concerned of if they did create some sort of further audit process for outliers, um, how exactly do they audit something like family size when the definition that is used doesn't match something that is standardized somewhere else, right? Like you could have picked up five homeless people and brought them into your house for a period of time and they're in your family size. Um, you may be not be claiming them as dependents. If you're supporting them. Right? And, and they spend half their time yeah. with you, which, you know, they, I'm just saying that it's possible to do that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. And, and I'll tell you, 
So the standard that is presently used for family size tracks the same language that the Department of Health and Human Services uses. So it's a standard that's often used for evaluating need on the part of families with financial needs so that you can um, adequately capture the that there's more need when you have larger families in terms of basic everything, right? You need more food, you need more money, you need you know, place to live. So when the family size standard was established for income driven repayment, that wasn't in the statute again. So the department of education to it with through a process that involved input from others chose to use this standard that is self-reported and they could have chosen to use the dependents on the tax form, as you say. So they could have chosen a verifiable, you know, simple way. And although I do not recall this part of the proceedings or wasn't there when it was happening, my guess is that they would have, if the reason to go with a more inclusive standard, like the one that's used for other kinds of public assistance, is in order to allow people to um, document greater need than would be documented by dependents on a tax return so that you can include your, you know, grandpa that lives upstairs and such. Uh, and yes, that that comes with the obvious trade-off of that then it will be self-reported by borrowers. So you have to rely on the threat of prosecution for perjury to get accurate information. And the government does that all the time. Yeah. You know, like they, they say, we trust you to be truthful because it costs too much to verify it. Or we we would rather let you, we would rather have the risk that you're lying than the risk that we're not allowing you to, to claim everything you should be allowed to claim. Right. And keep in mind, you know, in terms of a student loan payment, each additional family person represents about $50 a month in a student loan payment. Um Maybe 75 if you're in income-based repayment, 50 if you're in pay-as-you-earn or income-based repayment for new borrowers. But the the bottom line, as we talked about, even the lower payment doesn't necessarily, what am I trying to say? Necessarily. Necessitate. Necessitate the fact that you are going to get this long-term benefit from forgiveness because you still have to continue to do that. And even with that, additional family size reported, your income can't increase to points where you're eventually going to pay all the loans off anyway. In many many, camps, many cases, people are just deferring payments, accumulating additional interest and in, in increasing the amount that they're going to pay. So they're, they're really defrauding themselves. So true. And so you said that it's about $50 less a month for each additional family member. So if you had 93 family members, that is $4,650 potentially less than you should have paid if you had no family members, say. And But let's remember that this is not a, a refundable credit, no, no. right? Your payment, it can, can't go any lower than zero, right. right? So, you know, people don't, have payments set at $4,650 unless they have really high incomes. Like what would you have to make about $500,000 a year or something to have a payment that much? Yeah, at least. I mean, 
probably more. Right. So, so this is, so this is the fraud is like, you've got a rich person who is, you know, attempting to show a loan servicer a what, a tax return that says, hey, I made a half a million dollars last year, but I have 93 people in my family, so you should let me pay zero instead of, you know, $4,000 a month. Right, and it's probably they made 600000 700000 probably even more. But and, and they're probably trying to say, okay, I made half a million, three quarters of a million dollars last year. I'm trying to claim this ridiculous family size so I can get a lower student loan payment so I can save on what, $120,000 of student debt when I'm making three quarters of a million a year. And I'm going to continue to take all this liability and risk of lying for this extended period of time just to get this student loan benefit. I'm going to jail for five years. And just to get this student loan benefit no, on a small if, fraction of my overall financial well-being. I'm going to put everything at risk for that. But what if... But if you were a hardened criminal and you just liked crime and you were that same person with the $700,000 income or something, I would think you would choose other crimes that would be more profitable. Yeah, if anything, that's going to draw attention to the rest of your criminal enterprise. Like Bernie Madoff wasn't doing it because he's like, I don't need any more. I don't need any attention looking at me at all, right? I want to be a boy scout right. everywhere. They're possible. like, hey, Bernie, what family size should I put? He's like, put four. Everybody has a family size of four. Put <laughs> right. four. Exactly. Nobody's going to question that. They're you're like, no, I want to put 93. <laughs> it's, 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 it's insane. But, you know, it's what grabs the headlines and, 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 and really, you know, what people gravitate to for the uh, topic of the day. And to be fair, uh, we have been critical of, of public service loan forgiveness uh, and the and Department of Education on public service loan forgiveness, but you know, a month, couple of months ago, the headlines were all about public service loan forgiveness and how no one's getting their loans forgiven. And our our thought process coming from it is yes, the Department of Education has been defunct and deficient, and their responsibilities to servicers have been bad. Um, certain employer groups we talked about, you know, the teachers union that filed suit against uh, the Department of Education. You know, they should have done more to look out for their teachers early on in this process instead of now. And borrowers really needed to know more as well. There was, there's plenty of fault to be spread around in most of these topics. So uh, while we're, we're harping on the GAO and, and mm-hmm. everybody for these studies, the pendulum has swung on this particular case detrimental to borrowers, where in other cases, you know, I feel like some of the reporting is, has been overly egregious to the Department of Education, like along the lines of public service loan forgiveness where they're saying, hey, they're they're purposely denying these people. Well, s- sort of, but not that. It's more complicated right. than that. I mean, I think that's, that's the criticism that I almost always have about student loan reporting in the, in the you know, uh, popular media because it has to be short form enough that it has to be oversimplified. So it almost always ends up being, you know, at least somewhat, misleading. You just got to grab eyes. You know, because you just simplify the stuff too much. It's not true. Right. Exactly. If it bleeds, it leads. That's right. And it's, and it's got to pander to one side of the political aisle or the other, right? Like if it panders to one side, then you're going to get those readers who are going to get fired up about it. And then you pander to the other side and those readers get fired up about it. And then you win because you get great rating and clicks and views and everything else. Mm-hmm. You know what we should do is we should get somebody on here that has a a much, you know, different position. We should get somebody who's well-reasoned, but who can take more of a contrary position. Because, you know, we're sort of like, you know, on the, the, 
the borrower side of the spectrum. I mean, I know I always look at things from a perspective as an advocate for student loan borrowers when it comes to this topic like that. And that's how I was trained as a lawyer. Like you pick a side and then you make the best arguments you can for that side. And that's what I do, which is why, as you say, I criticize everybody um, because there's plenty of blame to go around. Uh, Except for what... And I'm sure I'm part of the problem. Except for with us. I was going to say, there's no, nobody's pointing fingers at us. We're perfect. <laughs> I'm pointing my finger at you right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, from North Carolina to Oregon, <laughs> my finger is pointing. And everybody, and everybody, everybody <laughs> in between. Yeah, they're all getting it. <laughs> I just, I just want to know. All right, cool. It's always. I just good. want to know what finger you're using to point. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know. I think you do know. <laughs> So, all right, Jance, we should um, cut this short because nobody wants to hear us blab um, any longer than this about, you know, student loans or anything else, probably. Yeah, it's, uh, this is good. And uh, everyone out there listening, thanks for tuning in. Um, hopefully you got some laughs, got some good information out of this, and we will uh, catch you guys next time. Later. Later.